glorification of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, why should we believe in Jesus as the only Savior? And perhaps the answer to that may be obvious to us, but to the world, it's a question that, uh, that they wrestle with and they struggle with and they would challenge in many ways. Why should we believe in Jesus as the only Savior? What's wrong with the, the, the saviors of other religions? Why is the salvation of Jesus superior to every other claim of every other savior, of every other prophet, of every other religion? And the answer is given in our passage before us this morning. And, and we might even go so far as to say on every page of Scripture the answer is given, but it is given so wonderfully and so specifically in this passage before us in the Gospel of Mark. The answer to the question is, because of who Jesus is. That's why he is more supreme, that he is superior to every other savior, saviors in the world. He is divine. Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was not just merely a better man than other men. He was not merely a wise teacher or philosopher. He was very God of very God. And we see this in our passage this morning as the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are given a glimpse of the divine glory of Jesus. His birth, of course, had been supernatural. He had taught, they had heard him teach with divine authority. They had witnessed him command the wind and the waves, and they asked, who is this? He had healed the sick and raised the dead with a mere touch or even a word. But now he adds this supreme evidence of his origin and his mission. His glory, which was thinly veiled in his human flesh, was allowed for a brief moment to shine forth. We might say his divinity broke through the limitations of his humanity. The Apostle Peter, in fact, who was one of the eyewitnesses of this, he writes in his epistle, 2 Peter 1.16, that they were eyewitnesses of His majesty and that God the Father honored and glorified Jesus on that mountain with them. In congregation, we need to see that the disciples needed to have this experience. You see, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the disciples, we know, would begin to preach the good news of His salvation. Salvation to be found in His name and His name alone. Their teaching, of course, we know, would go against the grain of Judaism. What they proclaimed would contradict every religious leader in Israel at that time and every pagan Greek religion in that uh, aspect of Greek religion in that culture, and they would face tremendous persecution as a result of their teaching. In the Gospel of Matthew, in fact, chapter 24, verse 22, Jesus tells them that they would be delivered up to tribulation, they would be killed, some of them, and hated by all nations for His name's sake. And so they needed to be convinced like no one else, we have to understand. They must know that the Savior they were about to proclaim was no mere man. That he was the true and living God in the flesh. That he was the God of their fathers. That the one with whom they walked and talked was the God of Moses and Elijah. And so Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed before their very eyes. And congregation, what they beheld with their eyes 
as eyewitnesses, we have recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures so that we may know that we have a Savior who is superior to every other Savior. So that we may know that no matter how great are our sins, no matter how great are our troubles, Jesus is greater. So that we may know that even though the world may mock the church for believing in a man who died in a on a cross many years ago, we know that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords. Our theme this morning then, as we look at Mark 9, verses 2 to 8, is this. Jesus reveals His divine glory at His transfiguration. Jesus reveals His divine glory at His transfiguration. We'll see in the first place that He does so through the changing of His appearance. In the second place, through Old Testament witnesses. And in the third place, through the testimony of his Father. But as Jesus reveals his divine glory at his transfiguration, we see in the first place that he does so by changing his appearance. In verses 2 to 3, we heard this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark records here that this incident, first of all, took place after six days. Six days after what? Well, six days after his conversation with his disciples at a place called, or on the way to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And that's recorded back in chapter 8. And we, in chapter 8, we read of Jesus asking his disciples this vital question. Who do you say I am? And Peter we might remember, answered very well. He said, you are the Christ. In other words, he was confessing that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the one whom God had promised in the Old Testament. The one who would come to redeem Israel. God's anointed servant. You are the Christ, he says. But then we remember that Jesus then began to explain to them what being the Christ actually meant. That he must suffer many things. That he must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And we remember that Peter took issue with that. And that he took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus in turn rebuked Peter saying to him, get behind me Satan for you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of men. And he began to teach his disciples that not only must he suffer, but they would suffer as well. And he warns them at that point that whoever was ashamed of him and his words in this generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. And he rounds off his teaching with these words in uh, chapter 9 verse 1. He said to them, truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, what was Jesus saying here? That there were some among the disciples who would behold with their own eyes a glimpse of the glory of God's kingdom to come. And now Peter, James, and John receive that glimpse. P Jesus takes them up on a high mountain. And in the scriptures we find that 
an ongoing theme where, Jesus, where God meets with his people on mountains. He often communicates with his people. And so Jesus now takes them up on a high mountain and he takes them by themselves. That is, only they were allowed to see this. This was an amazing privilege to the, uh, what scholars often call the inner circle. The ones closest to Jesus among the disciples. And there on this high mountain, Jesus is transfigured before their very eyes. Now, the Greek word translated transfigured, boys and girls, is a word that has made, it, made its way into the English language. The Greek word sounds like this, metamorpho. And as soon as I say that, you probably say, yeah, I know what English word comes from that. That's the Engli uh, we derive the English word metamorphosis from that. You've heard that in school, depending on which grade you are in. Our children, at a certain grade, you, in science, you learn that uh, metamorphosis is when something changes its form to become something else. Something changes its form to become something else. And so you learn that a maggot will eventually become a, a housefly, and a tadpole will become a, a frog, a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, all through the process of metamorphosis. And here, Jesus, using the original meaning of this Greek word, is transformed, he's changed before the eyes of his disciples for a brief moment. The curtain, as it were, is pulled back to reveal who Jesus really is. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that before his incarnation, Jesus was in the form of God. Very familiar passage, Philippians 2. Uh, Jesus was in the form of God. That is, he possessed all the characteristics of the divine nature. All that God is, Jesus was before his incarnation. All power, glory, and majesty belong to him. But we also need to confess, and Paul tells us that in Philippians 2, that to be our Savior, Jesus had to take on the form of a bondservant and come in the likeness of man. And so his incarnation, his becoming flesh, involved a great process of humbling and condescension. He didn't lose his divinity or give up his divinity. He took on the form of a bondservant. He was always God, but his appearance was as a man. He came in the flesh. But now he allows Peter, James, and John to see his heavenly glory. Mark tells us literally that his clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And he's borrowing language from the, uh, the, world, the, the world of uh, wool production. And in that time of the world, uh, of, 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 uh, in that time of the world when uh, a sheep was sheared, the wool was very dirty, very brownish, grayish, and it had to be washed. And in those times, in Roman times, stale urine was used, which possesses uh, natural ammonia, uh, which, uh, and the, the, the wool would be dipped into barrels of this, uh, of this urine. And slaves in that time um, would uh, be put in these tubs of urine, and they would have to step on this, on this wool. And the, the, the natural ammonia in the urine would make the wool uh, nearly snow white. And so Mark borrows language from that world, from the, the world of wool production. And um, now, before the eyes, the very eyes of his disciples, Jesus becomes radiant, in fact, more dazzling than any wool that they had ever seen whitened in their lives. And the gospel writer Matthew says that 
the face of Jesus shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. The gospel writer Luke says that his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And we have to understand that in their own way, they were trying to describe something that, that really can't fully be described. Something greater than human words can express. Because they were beholding the very glory of the true and living God. Now God's appearance in the Old Testament is often associated with brilliant light. In Exodus 24, which by the way is an Old Testament foreshadow of our present passage. In Exodus 24 we read in verse 17 that the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. In Exodus 34 verse 29 we read that when Moses came down the mountain, the skin of his face shone because he had been in the presence of God. And now we read of Jesus exhibiting divine brilliance. His appearance changed and His divine glory shone through, more dazzling than human words can describe, as radiant as the sun itself. And through this change in His appearance, Jesus was revealing that He was the God of the Old Testament. He was the God who had revealed Himself to their fathers, the God who had promised to save and restore us. And that's why, congregation, we may believe that there is no one who can save us like Jesus. There is no sin that He cannot forgive or he, that He has not forgiven. That is the confession of all those who believe in Him. His salvation is perfect because the one who came to die for our sins is God Himself. The one who was judged for our sins is the judge Himself. The one who took away God's anger is the only one who was equipped to take away such anger because he himself was God in the flesh. And so, beloved of God, whatever your burden may be this morning, cast it upon Jesus. However great may be your sins, hand them over to Jesus. Whatever comfort you may seek, find it only in Jesus. He is our Emmanuel, our God in the flesh. Our God with us, the eternal one, the almighty one. But as Jesus reveals his divine glory at his transfiguration, we see in the second place that he does so with Old Testament witnesses. In verses 4 to 6 we read, And there appeared to them Elijah and with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. As if it were not enough that the appearance of Jesus became dazzlingly brilliant, the disciples now witnessed the appearance of two powerful Old Testament characters, Elijah and Moses. Now there's some questions that we have to ask here, like, why them and not anyone else? Why not Joshua? Why not David? There's, there's so many Old Testament characters. What is the significance of their meeting with Jesus at this time on the mountain? How did the disciples even recognize who they were? But before we get into that, and we will, but I want to touch on the fact that this was Moses and Elijah that appeared here. Moses and Elijah had, of course, 
serve their God, but they had lived many hundreds of years before. And yet here they were, talking with Jesus. How the disciples recognized them, we're not told. We can only chalk this up to a divine revelation. God gave them the ability to recognize whom Jesus was talking to. But more importantly is the fact that they were here talking to Jesus. And, and this is just one more piece of biblical evidence that the God that we worship is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. This is yet another word of encouragement to those who grieve or who may have to grieve, to those who may have said goodbye to loved ones who have passed from this life, who have died in Christ. The death for those who die in Christ is not the end. We simply go from this realm to life before the presence of our Heavenly Father. That's why we speak and we confess of our, our comfort in life and in death. And so this passage, for one thing, is a reminder that death for us is not the end. We simply go from this realm into the presence of our Father. But back to the question, why Moses and Elijah? Well, the simplest and shortest answer is that Moses was the greatest leader of Israel, and Elijah was the greatest prophet of Israel. Moses, of course, was the human instrument in God's hands when he led the Israelites out of Egypt at the Exodus. And by the way, there's a lot of Exodus imagery in this passage as well. Uh, and it was to Moses that God had given his law, which he in turn delivered to Israel. And God used Elijah, of course, to bring reformation to his people when Israel was saturated with Baal worship. It was Elijah, we remember, who called Israel to stop faltering between two opinions. If Baal is God, worship him. If God is God, worship him. And so Moses and Elijah represented two very powerful figures in the history of Israel. No wonder we read this prophecy in the book of Malachi. In Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6, we read this, this prophecy. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so here again, in this Old Testament prophecy, we have Moses and Elijah being mentioned according to their most important roles that they played in their lives. Moses is mentioned as the lawgiver, and Elijah is mentioned as the prophet who through his work would reform Israel, turning their hearts back to their God. And so really two greater Old Testament figures cannot be imagined. The lawgiver and the greatest prophet, the prophet, prophet reformer, we have to say. But then we have to ask, why were they speaking with Jesus? Again, simple answer, to witness that all the work that they had done was being fulfilled in Him. All the law and the prophets find their meaning in Jesus. As Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 2, all the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen, and in Him amen to the glory of God through us. All of God's preparations, all of His prophecies, His preservation of the covenant line find their fulfillment in Christ. And so the greatest leader 
in Israel, or of Israel, accompanied by the greatest prophet of Israel, appear now to witness that their time was over, that their work was done, the time of Jesus was here. He was about to fulfill all that they had merely foreshadowed. The gospel writer fills in, uh, Luke fills in the blanks for us as to what they were actually talking about. In our ESVs, it says that they spoke of his departure. In the NKJV, it says of his decease, that is, his death. And interestingly, the Greek word that Luke uses in uh, chapter 9, verse 31 of his gospel is exodon. That's translated departure in our ESVs. Uh, he uses the Greek word exodon, from which we hear the word, and uh, the word is derived exodus. And so literally, they spoke to Jesus concerning his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So the, um, the, his death and what he would accomplish at his death. And I don't think it's coincidence that that kind of a language is used. And so what we have to see in the death of Jesus, once again, is that just as Moses had led Israel out of Egypt at the time of the exodus from slavery, and just as Elijah had led Israel out of Baal worship, so Jesus was about to lead his people, us, out of our slavery to sin. And he would do so by surrendering himself to rejection by his people, by his intense suffering, and finally by his cruel death on the cross. Peter, of course, did not fully understand what was going on here. And so he asked the permission of Jesus to make three tents to accommodate these three great men gathered in one place. And he was simply reacting in the great fear that they all felt as they saw this awesome sight. We might say that Peter was just stupefied and he was just babbling the first thing that he could think of. In his mind, this was such a wonderful moment that it should be commemorated. But you see, what he didn't get is that he was just trying to prolong something that was not meant to be prolonged. Moses and Elijah were Old Testament witnesses that the law and the prophets had come to an end in Jesus Christ. That's why we're never to read the law as a means, a means to gain or keep our salvation. Neither do we look for further prophecies. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled them both. And so, beloved, once again, we're reminded here not to trust in our good works, nor wait for full, further or fuller revelation. All that we need is found in Jesus as signified by the appearance of Moses and Elijah on that mountain. But as Jesus reveals his divine glory at his transfiguration, we see in the third place that further evidence is given by the testimony or the witness of his father. In verses 7 and 8, we heard, And a voice overshadowed them, and a voice came out a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, Peter, of course, does not receive an answer from Jesus as to his request to build three tents. What happened next was that they were given testimony from God the Father himself that they could see and that they could hear. A cloud, Mark records, came and overshadowed or covered them. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, so that Peter, James, and John could not see them anymore. 
And then they heard a voice saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. But what does all this mean? Well, again, we have Old Testament imagery here. The cloud being further evidence that they were in the presence of a divine manifestation, divine revelation. In the Old Testament, we read of many instances when, where the Lord's presence would be signified by the presence of a cloud. I'll give you one example. Exodus 24, verses 15 and 16. Exodus 24, 15 and 16. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And there are many instances of this in the Old Testament. You think of the pillar of cloud that accompanied Israel through the wilderness and so on. Uh, we might also think of 1 Kings 8, where we read of the dedication of the Temple of Solomon, uh, built for the worship of the Lord. And we read there that when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And so cloud is once again associated with the glory of God. And now we read of a cloud overshadowing or enveloping Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. What was happening here? God was making his presence known. And then he speaks out of the cloud, declaring Jesus to be his beloved son and commanding the disciples to listen to him. And we have to see that a number of Old Testament passages are being fulfilled in just these few words. Passages like Genesis 22 where God refers to Isaac as the beloved son of Abraham, your only son, your beloved son. Psalm 2 verse 7 where God declares of Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, just to name a few, where Moses says to Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from, from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear, or listen to him. And so the words of God, the Father at the transfiguration of Jesus, here are to be understood as the affirmation of the unique sonship and the divine authority of his words. The disciples were to hear him. They were to listen to him and to not doubt him. He was speaking in the authority of his father and he was speaking with divine truth. Peter would later write in his second epistle that when they heard the voice from heaven, it was a confirmation of all the words that the prophets had spoken in the Old Testament. And congregation, it is absolutely vital that we too today again heed these words. God has declared that Jesus is his beloved son and that we have to listen to him. We have to believe him. And what has Jesus said? Well, he has said things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He has said that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He has said that whoever believes in him has eternal life. He calls all who are weary and burdened to find rest in him. He has said that he will come again in glory as judge. And so we are to believe and not doubt. And the end of this event is itself a testimony to the uniqueness of Jesus. In verse 8, listen again. 
And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And so the cloud disappears. And Elijah and Moses, the greatest figures in Old Testament history, have vanished. Of course they have. Their work is done. They have no permanent standing. And Jesus alone remains to complete his journey to Jerusalem, to do the work for which he was sent, a work that he alone can do and a work that he must do. And we are left to simply marvel. And may we marvel again this morning, beloved of God, and continue to marvel every day of our lives. Because you see, the devil and our sinful natures want us to go back to, what can I do to be saved? But that's not what God wants us to see in the Word. He wants us to see what He has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. He wants us to see that He, the God of glory, came to us in Jesus to save us from our sins. And He did what no other could do because only one divine could bear divine wrath. And so leave this house this morning once again stunned at God's incomparable love, mercy, and grace, and yet confident that there is no Savior like Jesus. Amen.